It's a, it's a joy to uh, be back in Louisiana. Uh, my wife and I drove through back a few weeks ago, uh, making, uh, making a trek to Texas, but uh, it, it's good to be here. It's good to, to be with Jim and finally get to meet face-to-face. And then Tommy Middleton and I go all the way back, fresh out of college, students at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So it is such a joy to be with Tommy. And then um, we pastored kind of close to each other, where Cody Cunningham's father-in-law is pastor now, where I was, and Tommy was in Brookhaven. And I still remember, he, we were talking earlier, and he said, yeah, we... We preached each other's church. And I said, yeah, you preached the Beatitudes, and I still remember it. I can't tell you the details, but I remember it ministered to my soul uh, back then. So I was, I was so encouraged. Well, Jude, what a powerful little epistle. It's one you can pick up and read it and go, that dude was facing some stuff. I mean, there, there were some hard things going on. There were some struggles that, uh, that he was having to contend with. And then you start reading a little bit more and you realize, you know, I may be seeing some of these same kind of things. I know they're happening all around me. And I may be facing some of these same kind of things. So what, what I want us to, to do in these first couple of verses is... We're going to answer the question, who are these Christians? I mean, how did Jude identify them? Well, who are are Christians? What are they? Uh, They are the called. They are beloved by the Father. They're kept for Jesus. That's who Christians are. But I want us to do this from a pastoral perspective and to to think in terms of what Jude is doing. And, And I hope to try to paint that in such a way that you see where he's coming from He wasn't just rattling some things off and some good theological ideas. He's giving encouragement for brothers and sisters that are going through a difficult time. Hear the word of God. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Every pastor walked through the experience of having members that are struggling with their faith in Christ. I mean, it's one of the main reasons that the Lord has set us apart as pastors to serve in local churches. I mean, if we think we're going to go there and everybody's going to be fine, we better find another job because it's not going to be like that. Even in good, healthy churches. You're going to have people that are struggling. They have to deal with themselves. They have to deal with their backgrounds. They've got their personalities. They've got their, their emotional wiring. And people struggle. They wrestle. They doubt. They're confused. There's anxiousness in them. And so on Sundays, we're not just getting up pontificating about our favorite doctrines. We are nurturing souls. We are diagnosing soul issues and then applying the gospel uh, to as the remedy for those soul issues. We're not trying to gloss over the hard realities of spiritual struggles as though they'll just go away. Uh, one evening, my wife and I sat with a young couple. Uh, they put their kids to bed. We, we visited with them and we loved being with them. They had a great hunger for the Lord and it was very evident in their lives. And yet behind the smiles 
on Sundays, there were some struggles that came to the surface. Uh, the wife's background was from a very unstable family, and then she was part of a church. She and her husband were part of a church where the pastor sought to control and bully the people into his, his image. Uh, and, and it left her wrestling. She, she knew she was saved, and yet she struggled with the Lord accepting her. Uh, I mean, she had, like us, uh, knew her failures. Uh, she saw areas where she liked discipline. She recognized areas of disobedience and inconsistencies. And in that process, she wondered if she could ever have a steady, maturing faith in Christ. And she lived for years under this, this pastor pounding away, whose doctrine we probably pretty much agree with most of it, but not his application of it. And, and so uh, it, it left her wounded, and she was struggling. And uh, this couple just needed the simple, sweet truths of the gospel that would go right to the heart of their aching souls and bring healing. And that couple could be multiplied. I, I look back over 44 years of pastoring and a few other years where I was not pastoring but, but helping out in churches. And, and I've seen this over and over. Uh, I mean, sometimes I had the opportunity face to face to apply the gospel and work through in, in conversation. Other times it was from the pulpit. And th this is where pastoral preaching is different from just preaching. Because in pastoral preaching, you're reading faces. You've already been thinking and exegeting the congregation in your study, but you're reading faces as you preach and you're seeing some that are struggling and you know them. You've been praying for them. You've been living life with them and you're reading them as you preach and you're needing to apply the word to them. And, and sometimes in the sermon, you see those tears. You go, I mean, you want to stop and go, glory to God. Uh, but, I mean, you keep going, but you see it happening. Sometimes it's at the Lord's table. And, and here, those tears are coming, you know the Lord worked. Other times, you're just left agonizing in prayer. Because you know they have not gotten that balm from the Lord in the gospel that they need to free them from whatever they're dealing with. Well, that's exactly what we find in Jude. This is a sermonic letter, and I, I appreciate so much the way Jim set this up for us and to help us to, to see he was contending for the faith, but not in a contentious way. Uh, there, there's no fanfare here. There's no personal greetings. He just dives right into the issues at hand, but not before he lays a gospel foundation. I mean, if he would deal with those that were slipping away from the faith or those deceiving influences in the church, or the twisted explanations and applications that left those Christians in bondage, he could not affect them by being a cheerleader or being a psychologist. He needed to be a gospel preacher. They needed the word to go right to their hearts. They were teetering on the edge of, of spiritual defeat. And so what Jude does is set us an example for all of us who follow in his, in his footsteps, his pastors and elders of local churches, and how we minister to our people. And so this is the way I, I want to approach this text. I want to think about it pastorally. We could take this text, just apply it to our congregation. But I want to apply it to us pastorally. That if our people will live in the joy and liberty of life in Christ, they need faithful pastoral 
preaching and instruction to guide them. If our people will live in the joy and liberty of Christ, they need faithful pastoral preaching and instruction to guide them. That's the way the Lord set it up. He gave us churches. He gave shepherds, pastors, elders, overseers in those churches who are to be training them. So what does it look like to have faithful shepherds guiding the churches we serve? Would you give us a pastoral perspective for working with Christians under three headings. First, we want to look at pastoral identification. Second, at the saints' explanation. And third, at an assuring implication. So first, pastoral identification. Well, there were those that were infiltrating the, 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 the churches that Jesus was trying to serve. They were trying to exercise power over the members of the church. They were turning the grace of God into licentiousness, Denying the only master in Lord Jesus Christ, as verse 4 says. Uh, verse 10, they were uh, speaking against doctrines they didn't understand. They were um, trusting their manipulative, narcissistic instincts above the teaching of God's word. Verse 11, they were rebelling against the authority of those who sought to faithfully minister the word. Going away of Cain and the rebellion of Korah. Uh, verses 12 and 13 is rather full orb so that we're not in doubt at the deceitfulness and damage that takes place through those who are perpetrating this false teaching. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. I've been there and I've watched that sometimes and think, yep, there's that hidden reef. And we have to guard. We have to recognize that. I mean, here were the saints gathering. They're having their fellowship meals. And, and these false teachers were just filled with gusto. Isn't this great? They're uh, glad handing everybody, patting folks on the back and, and telling everybody how great and wonderful everything was. But Jude said they're clowns without water. They're fruit trees doubly dead without fruit. They are destructive ways and their destiny is hell. And they were influencing and in some ways controlling many of the churches. And so what Jude was seeking, uh, what Jude was seeking to shepherd these people through this season. So how would he approach uh, many who were unsuspecting in the congregation that they might, uh, so that they might really trust him in his shepherding ministry? You, you know, you got to realize he wasn't with them. As far as we know, he, he was writing to these people that he knew. Um, some suggest that Jude may have planted the churches where he was writing. That very well could have happened. So he was known to them. And so how would they trust him? These other folks were there with them, seeing them all the time. How would they trust him? Well, I want you to see the model that he gives. Two things. That a pastor is a servant, not a master. A servant, not a master. So here's the sharp contrast between the bullying, controlling false teachers that Jude says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I mean, talking about a glaring difference. He, he had one ambition and that ambition was to please the Lord Jesus Christ who'd redeemed him and had set him apart to serve these churches. And, and this kind of servant language is you know, sometimes in our day, people shrink back from it because of periods of our history that uh, we saw so much misuse of this. And, and people went through so many hardships 
And yet it's interesting that Jude doesn't hesitate to use this kind of terminology. He was a servant of Jesus Christ, who was his master and Lord. And we see the servant language used throughout Scripture to identify so many of those that we see in the Word and go, I want to be like them. Abraham was called God's servant in Psalm 105. Moses was called God's servant in Nehemiah 9. David was called God's servant in Psalm 89. Daniel in Daniel 6 was called, uh, called himself a servant of the Lord. Paul called himself repeatedly this servant, this bond servant of the Lord in Romans, Galatians, in Philippians. Peter did the same thing. James, Jude's brother, did the same thing. So to be called a servant means we have one master and we're committed to obey and please that master. And each servant of Christ finds his model in the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, our modern sensitivities tend to shrink back from this servant language because they're, they're words we look back historically and still going on today. Many inequalities and hardships. Uh, and yet with that, we mustn't let our sensitivities obscure what the point that he's making here. There uh, were, were those that because of their birth, their nobility, their wealth, imposed servanthood upon others whom they consider to be inferior. But to be a servant of Jesus Christ is to confess we're not equal to him. Those other folks were equal. They just didn't admit it. But we're not equal to him. This perfect holy, righteous Son of God, is to confess that our whole life is dependent on Him, to obey Him, to please Him. And should we not want to gladly wear that label uh, of this one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many? Shouldn't we want to wear that kind of servant label? And so this servant of Jesus Christ sought to serve some scattered congregation in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, because they needed some clear guidance for troubling times. And so his focus was to try to deal with these false teachers who were entrapping them. And so we, we can ask the question, do we wear the title of bondservant of Jesus Christ with gladness? And I, I would imagine most all of us would say, well, I'm a servant of Jesus. Yes, yes, brother, I, I agree with that. But what does that mean? I mean, like the suffering servant, what does it mean? Let me just toss out a few things for us to consider. It means we're marked by a humble, teachable heart. A humble, teachable heart. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't talk about himself a whole lot, but one of the things he said about himself was that he was humble. And, you know, we shrink from calling ourselves humble because as sure as we do, our pride begins to, to puff up. Not so with our Lord Jesus. And yet we're to be marked by a humble, teachable heart. Uh, a second thing, we're grateful to spend and to be spent for our people's spiritual health. That's what Jesus did. A third thing, we're diligent in pursuing holiness like our Lord. Uh, a fourth thing, we're seeking to be gentle and patient with the flock charged to us. The, the moment we get to be heavy-handed, brothers, the moment we lose our patience, the moment we become angry, we're no longer being servant, we're being master. And we've got to remember that. 
um, assisting, we're happy to decrease while Jesus increases in our churches. And so this first matter of the, uh, our pastoral identity is that we're servants, not masters. Second, we are stewards with derived authority. We are stewards with derived authority. Now, one of the characteristics of those that were duping the Asia Minor churches was the false teacher's isolationism from the broader body of the church and the apostolic gospel that was central to the churches. And so because of their isolation, they claimed their own authority. And so like Korah, who rejected the God-given authority belonging to Moses, they assume, these false teachers among this audience, assume that their intelligence and their position was enough to secure their credibility. They couldn't appeal to the apostolic gospel because they were not contending for that faith. And so instead, Jude tells us, verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct and like unreasoning, uh, unreasoning animals by these things, they are destroyed. They followed their desires, their inflated self-importance, not the apostolic gospel. That's why Jude, in, in his connection with this church, is, uh, in his identification with them, is not one of coming saying, Hey, I am Jesus, brother. You all need to listen to me because I'm Jesus, brother. He didn't do that. He, he refused to use Jesus in a self-aggrandizing way. And we've got to make sure we don't use Jesus for our own purposes. Instead, he wanted to be judged on the merits of his faithfulness to the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ that he called the church to earnestly defend. And so he connects himself to one of the uh, later apostles, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, just like Jude, and he calls himself the brother of James. Now, what was the big deal about James? Uh, Jim was pointing out, you know, this was the James that, uh, that was uh, over the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, Jerusalem Council, and was an extraordinary defender of the apostolic gospel. And in that critical Council, he stood firmly upon the gospel of the crucified, resurrected, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and yet, this is that same James that was identified with Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and some uh, half-sisters that the people in Nazareth said, We know you. We know that you are brothers of Jesus Christ. And yet, being Jesus' half-brother would have given Jude a little bit of leverage, a little bit of esteem with these people, but he had no interest in doing anything that would manipulate uh, their esteem. Instead, he wanted them to respect the message of the gospel that he proclaimed. The titles mean a lot in our day. Uh, maybe they mean too much. I mean, we, we think because we wear the title pastor or senior pastor or lead pastor or teaching pastor or reverend doctor, I mean, what, whatever it is, that those words affixed to our name give us authority. Uh, brother, that's not where our authority is. John Owen asked the question, what is authority in a preaching ministry? 
He said, it is a consequence of unction, not of office. And Jude agreed with John Owen at this point. He saw himself as part of the broader church, connected with the apostolic gospel and with authority found in the faithful declaration of that gospel. Not authority found in himself as a half brother of Jesus who ate at the same table and um, and played with him and worked with him and all that. So we might ask ourselves, where is Jesus Christ in our pastoral authority and leadership? Do we make some unwarranted assumption on authority as attached to a position rather than rooted in the living Lord of the church and his gospel? I mean, where's Jesus' character being displayed in the fruit of the Spirit in our use of pastoral authority? Uh, Is our authority more like the lording of the Gentile kings? Is it more like those who live looking over their shoulders while trying to make pastoral authority their domain instead of seeing that all that we have has been entrusted by the good shepherd and we are just stewards to him. Let's don't be that number who misuses their brothers and sisters because of an idolatrous clinging to an idol of pastoral power. Let's not be those who dare think that pastoral authority is inherent with the title of pastor instead of a stewardship to be exercised in selfless humility through the ministry of the word as bondservants of Jesus connected to the larger body of the church. My very dear friend Jordan Thomas, pastors in in Memphis, uh, he and I were interacting on this subject in in the note he wrote to me I, I thought was helpful. He said, for some years now, I've been pondering something similar, namely whether or not a pastor has any authority or if his authority is only borrowed while truly residing and remaining exclusively in the Christ-centered book, which he is called a herald. Insofar as he faithfully proclaims and emulates the Christ of Scripture, the pastor has a sort of derivative authority. I like that phrase. He has a sort of derivative authority. Wherever he errs in speech or conduct, he has none. He said, I don't know if I'm thinking well on this or not. I admit that the notion of pastors having authority gives me the heebie-jeebies. And I may be overreacting to some poor examples of pastor dictators. Brothers, our identity as pastors is to be servants, not masters. And our connection with the larger body of the church and its authority in the apostolic gospel is the very basis for our pastoral authority. That's the pastor's identification. But second, it's the saint's explanation. And this is where Jude uh, doesn't hesitate to lay a foundation in the saving mercies of Christ. He's identified himself as the servant. He's identified uh, now his recipients by that same gospel that he has been appointed to proclaim. And and there's so much pastoral wisdom in this because he explains that the saints find their identity not in performance, not in adhering to a list of regulations, uh, uh, nor are they to be affected by the false teachers, but rather their, their whole identity is shown in the grace 
that has been given to them by the triune God. And so he writes to those who are. He's distinguishing them from the false teachers who are masquerading as church members. So he said, yeah, there are those that are masquerading and, and they're, uh, they are uh, fruit trees that are doubly dead and they have no fruit. Uh, they are uh, waves that are being cast up and surf that is being cast up. He said, but not you to those who are. These others are those who cause divisions. They're worldly minded. They're devoid of the spirit. And they are the ones that speak arrogantly. They flatter people for the sake of advantage. But not you. You're wrapped up in the gospel. You're noted by the gospel. I mean, so often uh, members in whom we've poured out our lives uh, in gospel work, struggle with their identity in Christ in the gospel. And said they, they drift toward artificial standards, levels of performance, adherence to a code of conduct, pounded into their minds. Do this, do this, do this, and you're acceptable by God. But what they need and what by God's grace we labor to help our congregation see is that our whole identity is wrapped up in the one who declared it is finished. That's where it's found. And so we need to ponder Jude's explanation uh, that these Christians are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This is pastoral practice in preaching. So there, there are certainly dozens of ways that we could help our people understand who they are in Christ and that assurance of salvation, because this is really, and I so appreciated Jim talking about those bookends with assurance on the front end and that keeping power of Christ on the back end of this epistle. And, and so he's beginning with this sense of assurance. We want our people to understand who they are in Jesus Christ. And so what Jude explains helps us today that Christians are recognized by the gracious work of God through Jesus Christ in their lives. And so as pastors, what we are to be regularly doing is helping our people understand what God in Christ has done in them. And what he has done, what he has promised them. Uh, it, it, it's not what the professing Christian does that makes him or her distinct. Rather, it is what God has done in them. And that's where the emphasis is. Uh, that's what we have to seek to do by the grace of God as we shepherd our people. Uh, we have people with very sensitive personalities. Uh, we have folks that, I mean, and I, boy, I've seen it. I'd say, you know, make some statement and it would send someone off in an absolute tizzy emotionally, mentally because of things in their background. And I have to sit down with them and explain, no, 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 that's, that's not what I was implying. I'm implying this. Our words are so critically important. And so in our preaching, are we emphasizing, and I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about people being passive. We're, we're not passive as Christians. We're very active. We are walking in obedience. We are believing the gospel. We are living out holy lives. But we do that because of what God has done in Christ. Are we making sure our people understand that's the foundation? The foundation is not you. The foundation is not 
your level of performance. It is what God has done. So notice the three ways that he anchors this. First, he says Christians are those who are called by God. And that's what he simply calls him. You are those who are the called. That kind of language looks back to a past event. So what does it mean to be called by God? It cannot mean that the initiative begins with us and then God jumps on board. That would be theologically wrong. And in this case, it would be grammatically wrong. Because this idea of calling was something that came before you. And we think in Romans 3, Jim was mentioning that earlier. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And and this doesn't mean that people don't want to naturally be religious. I mean, after the fall, uh, the, the vestiges of the image of God are still there. Humanity recognizes they are incomplete apart from some kind of higher being or power. And so you have even tribal areas and people go and they're, they're worshiping something. And so people want to naturally be religious, but they have an aversion of following the God of the Bible. And so Paul says, no one understands God. No one seeks him. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we're living under the power of the, the, the prince of the power of the air. And so a person may be religious within that sphere, but that religion is going to be a distortion of some concept of the creator redeemer or uh, the pursuit of a God that's shaped by our own imagination or some kind of faint resemblance or caricature of the God of the Bible. We're trapped by our sin and our self-centeredness. We turn to our own way. That's why we must have the call of God on our lives. Abraham had to have that call of God. Uh, Joshua, I mean, you know, if we think, well, Abraham just grew up learning about Jehovah and learning about him. And one day he just took off and followed. No, Joshua says that Abraham and his father Terah served other gods in Joshua 24, 3. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. Uh, I mean, the the Lord had to initiate the contact uh, with him because he had other gods that had captured his devotion and attention. So we get to Genesis 12 and the Lord God called him out without Abraham initiating it. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth. Don't you love the way Genesis 12 starts? I mean, Genesis 11, Abram is mentioned, the the son of Terah. He just mentioned. And then all of a sudden, now the Lord. I mean, you say that word now in the Bible. There's a breaking in that's happening. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, God pursued Abraham to bring him out of his devotion to false gods into that relationship with the Lord God himself. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven eight 8 said, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. The same thing happens by the enabling work of the Holy Spirit 
through the gospel of Jesus Christ in that, that supernatural call of God, the evidence of it is our faith and obedience. I mean, you want to know who the called are? They're believing the gospel. They're obeying the Lord. That's how you recognize them. And the, the same language is used in many places in Scripture. In Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. You've got both those ideas, calling and protection. Uh, Isaiah 48, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I, even I, have spoken indeed. I have called him. I have brought him. And he will make his way successful. No doubt Jude has something, this kind of background in, in mind when he said these Christians are the called. There's part of our assurance. Now, how do we, how do we flesh this out? Let, let me give you four observations. One, when we come to terms, first, that the Lord initiates our salvation, we do not come to him on our own terms. It fills us with joy in knowing we belong to him. He has pursued us. He meets us in our sin. He meets us in our obstinacy. And he calls us into relationship with himself. First Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing are you in Christ Jesus. He was made into us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Second, he calls us in such a way that it is distinct and we respond. Now, I, we all would agree to the general call of the gospel that's found anytime we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We welcome sinners to believe the good news. And that general call, though, falls upon deaf ears and dead minds apart from God's doing. Otherwise, we pat ourselves on the back that we responded and our dullard friend next to us didn't respond. I mean, think of the distinction in Acts 2 and Acts 7. The gospel was preached in both of those. And those who heard the gospel preached in Acts 2 repented and believed the gospel. Those who heard the gospel preached in Acts 7 killed the messenger. What's the difference? Were the people in Acts 7 just dumb? Stupid? Were they more evil than the people in Acts chapter 2? Well, Peter says in Acts 2.39 that this gospel promise is for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And that, that's one of those mysterious things, isn't it? And yet we stand on that. That's why Luke later on could describe Lydia's conversion in these terms. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Third, God's call is an act of grace given to those who hear the good news and believe. And in other words, the call of God in the gospel affects us. Uh, we're never the same. Uh, we move to Christ. I, I remember as a 15 year old not having really any interest in Christ. And I heard the gospel one day and it staggered me. And the next day I believed. And I had no interest it, and here the Lord met me. Here was this act of grace. I mean, this call of God comes and we begin to live in the grace of God. And we may not understand it the way we will in years ahead. But we know this. I'm his and he is mine. And we know that in simplicity and that effectual call of God in the gospel by the spirit distinguishes 
true believers from those who are merely religious. And a fourth uh, observation is this calling of God positively affects our evangelism and gospel talks. It, it gives us encouragement to know that God is pleased to awaken those who are dead in their sins from uh, out of our faltering explanation of the gospel. It, it, everything's not sitting on our shoulders. It's sitting in the power of God, but we are the, the vessels. And so as I had a conversation with a Muslim guy on one of my flights, uh, and I was able to share a, a little bit of the gospel I, I thought that I, I was thinking about some of my friends that serve in, in the Islamic world talking about how the typical Muslim convert has heard some implication of the gospel at least 30 times before they repent and believe. And I thought, I don't know what number I am, Lord, but will you use that? Will you use that? That burden was, was not on my shoulders to convert him. My burden was be clear with the gospel to him. I mean, we don't have to come up with clever techniques and manipulate decisions. Instead, we preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead, knowing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And it's God's prerogative and his grace is being extended in that call of the gospel. Our prerogative is to proclaim the gospel so that all may hear. Christians are those that are called by God. Second, Christians are those beloved in God the Father. No doubt uh, Jude was trying to give a lot of encouragement here because these, these Christians were struggling. I mean, you read this epistle. I've been reading it over and over and reading it in my devotion time, thinking about it. These folks were struggling. They were around some, uh, some enslaving kind of people who were trapping them. But he said, you know who you are? You are beloved in God the Father. That is, you are loved by God in a distinct way so that his love never diminishes. His love is never withdrawn. I, I think Jude loved the perfect passive verb. He loved you and that love doesn't end. And he's the one that's doing the loving. You're not initiating it. It is God himself that is doing that kind of love. He set his affections on you and those affections never end. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. So in other words, God doesn't call us beloved because we're lovable or because we do things that cause him to love us. It's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, we've looked at our lives even this day and we go, thanks be to the Lord. I'm beloved of him. Uh, I mean, this love flows out of his heart. And his desire, and he sets his affections upon a people, and he showers us with grace. I mean, think about Hosea. He was called to love a harlot. Brothers, she wasn't loved for her character. She wasn't loved for her good example. She wasn't loved for her faithfulness. And that was given as a model. And Israel wasn't loved for her special behavior or potential. And we're not loved that for our behavior either. And that frees us from the legalism of a treadmill religion. As Moses declared in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you 
and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, that's the love of the Lord. I mean, think, think about how Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 1, 6 and 7 and said, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Maybe Jude was borrowing from Paul. Maybe Paul was borrowing from Jude. Uh, and to all who are beloved of God in Rome called to saints. I, I like how one writer put it that Paul and, and Jude were saying the same thing. And then he adds this. God called us out of sheer love. It is not that Jesus delivered us and the Father had to accept us, but that the Father loved us and in that love called us. And that great love is demonstrated when God sent His Son and His Son went to the cross on our behalf and bore divine judgment against us so that this supernatural call of God might be on our lives as those who are beloved by him. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to find clever ways to manipulate our flock to do what we want them to do. We need to find ways to go back to the word to remind them, you're beloved by the Father. And you need to feel that weight and that beauty. I and mean, this is assurance for every believer. You are beloved in God the Father. He pursued you in love for a relationship to himself. He chooses to pour out his love upon you richly throughout all eternity. His love covers all details regarding your salvation. I love the way some of the old writers did pastoral work. They, they were so thorough. Uh, Martin Booster, uh, in his book concerning the true care of souls, was talking about dealing with different, different kinds of members of the congregation that, that struggle and, and so he was, he was talking about those struggling folks who commonly do not consider sufficiently that Christ our Lord alone is the one who is, gives, and performs for us everything which we can desire to our true advantage, happiness, and honor. You see, what we're doing, we're regularly trying to help our people understand this. Look what God did in Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't say, almost. I'm waiting on you to finish the rest of it. It is finished. Tetelestai. It's over. Well, let that kind of fully redemptive love settle the fears of our hearts and calm our anxiousness about all the circumstances of life. That the death and resurrection of Jesus show the certainty that we are in the beloved. And life can come unglued. But nothing changes that. The third way he described Christians is Christians are those kept for Jesus Christ. I, I can imagine that, you know, as we're looking at this and listening to this, we, we might think, you know, I'm not worried about God. I'm concerned about me. I'm, I, I know my weakness. I know my tendencies. I know my proneness to wander. There are others that maybe they're going through persecution or maybe they are facing or terminal illness, or they're overwhelmed by their failures, or they, they've faced some kind of real hardship in life and they're struggling because they are judging by their circumstances the affection of the Lord. I mean, we've had to deal with that as pastors, haven't we? I, I had this with an Uber driver. 
um, going to the seminary. Uh, he was um, talking about all the stuff that had gone on. That God had been through horrible, horrible physical issues. And I just kept trying to head it off and point out, uh, talking about Elizabeth Elliot's book, Suffering is Never for Nothing. It's never for nothing. God is always at work. I mean, he needed a good dose of, of God's sovereignty doesn't, doesn't hamper who we are, even in those hard times. God's sovereignty is at work. His love never changes. I mean, you know, we can get a bad diagnosis. We can experience a loss. We can go through some kind of horrific experience and wonder, has God abandoned me? And then we drift into legalism trying to improve our position and trying to do something to get ourselves in back in, in uh, where we think we need to be. So to counter this kind of faulty thinking, Jude intentionally uses the language of eternal action in all three of these declarations of being called by God, beloved by God and kept for Christ. And so the, uh, the, the last two participles are, are perfect tense, the divine passive emphasizing this is this ongoing, intentional, unrelenting love and unrelenting keeping power of God through Jesus Christ. So Jude can confidently describe Christians as those kept for Jesus. Now, that's a good thing, because if we were kept by our own power, we need to start worrying. We better be really troubled. But isn't that where we find so many of our people, even though we've told them over and over, they still struggle at that point. Again, one of the one of the old guys, William Perkins in The Art of Prophesying, was talking about applying the gospel to people that are that are struggling with assurance. He, he said the first thing we've got to do is see if they're under law or under grace. And so he did, said the diagnosis of a person's spiritual status involves investigating whether they are under the law or under grace. In order to clarify this, we must probe and question to discover from them whether they are displeased with themselves because they have displeased God. Do they hate sin as sin? That is the foundation of the repentance which brings salvation. And then he says, secondly, we must ask whether they have or feel in the heart a desire to be reconciled with God. He said, this is the groundwork for living faith. And he says, if we see they're under grace, then what do we do? We begin to press home gospel truths that their sin is pardonable, that the promises of grace are made generally to all who believe, not made to specific individuals so that they think they're excluded. They're made to all believers that the will to believe is itself faith. That sin does not abolish grace, but rather since God turns everything to the good for those who are his, even our sin can lead to further illustrations of grace. That in this fallen and sinful world, all of God's works are done by means which are contrary to him because they're being done by us and we do all kinds of things contrary to him. And then pastorally, he says, we, we can't leave our people passive. We've got to call for action. We're declaring truth, but we want them to act on it. And so he says they must be encouraged in the very bitterness of the temptation to stir up the faith, which has been lying idle, but covered over as it were. How do we do that? We encourage our people to get in the word. We encourage them to walk in obedience. 
We encourage them to serve the Lord. He said they must reassure themselves that their sins are forgiven. And they must be encouraged to struggle vigorously in prayer, either alone or with others, against carnal sense and human hope. Pastoral work with struggling saints uh, should keep us leading our people back and back to the gospel. Uh, you know, I, I, I used to think that, you know, I preach the gospel for the unbelievers and I preach something else for the saints. And I finally realized, nope, you preach the gospel for the saints. And then the unbelievers hear it and get converted. We need that gospel when we grow in our understanding of the word, when we grow in that, that Christocentric understanding of Scripture, then we find ourselves more and more growing in our assurance. I mean, we're never told to trust in ourselves. We're never told to trust in our abilities or, or our power to keep ourselves as Christians. But rather, we're met with the promise that we're kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're, we're assured by Jesus that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I am the Father of one. That's why Paul could write, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other thing would be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we help our people live in this assurance from a pastoral standpoint? They're struggling. They see their sins. They feel their weakness. But we keep reassuring them. You are the called Beloved in God the Father, you're kept for Jesus Christ. And the Father takes seriously the eternal bride of His Son. Well, the last thing, very quickly, we, we see this pastoral identification, the saint's explanation, and third, assuring implication. So Jude ends in the optative mode, this prayer wish in light of the gospel foundation and being the called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So let me ask you, if mercy, peace, and love are continuing to be up multiplied in our lives by the Lord, because that, that's the implication, passive voice is being, uh, is being used here, will we fall prey to false teachers and slide into godless practices and rebel against the Lord who redeemed us? Will our people remain long in their struggles with assurance if mercy, peace, and love is continuing to be multiplied? That's, that's part of the point that he's making. So how do we get this mercy, peace, and love? Well, it's found in the explanation. It is yours in Christ who are called by the gospel in the Spirit's power, who are beloved by the Father who sent the Son, and who are kept for Jesus Christ so that you might enjoy Him forever. The same God who took initiative and acts on our behalf to save is the same who will certainly act to sanctify us and provide every grace that we need. And so, pastors, see what Jude is doing. 
He just opens the gospel in the striking terminology of divine action on our behalf. And then he gives this prayer wish to consider the implication that if God has gone to such lengths to call you, to love you, to keep you, then count on his mercy in trials. Count on his peace when the devil tries to rattle your faith. Count on his love when you're challenged to live the Christ-like, Christ life in hard circumstances. The God who takes initiative doesn't leave you. That's the kind of God he is. That's where I sought to land with my young friend. That's why I told her, Pastor, I said, this is what I want you to do. Just take the next month. I just want you to read the Gospels. Start in Matthew, go through the end of John. When you get finished, start back in Matthew. Just read the Gospels. See who Jesus is. See his character. See what he has done for us. See his gentleness. See his care. See him fulfilling all that the Father sent him to do. And then go on by God's grace and live in him. That's a pastoral perspective from the opening of this letter. Let's pray. Father, will you help us who are charged with shepherding our people through their doubts and their struggles and their weaknesses and all the influences they have. Will you help us to be clear in the way we set forth Christ, clear in the way we set forth your mercies, your love, your care, toward your people. And would you do that in such a way that our people radiate with the joy of Jesus Christ? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.